I know today is a day of life and resurrection, but I'm going to murder Gus Moen, my worship leader and service arranger for putting my daughter's song right before I have to get up and talk to you guys. What a beautiful melody and truth and just, um, I'm, I, I'm like you, I, I would assume. Um, if you're not like this, then I applaud you and I, I want to walk in your shoes one day, but I need reminders of truth and I need to be um, brought to the reality over and over and over again that what we do is real and that he really is risen from the dead. And I think Jesus is so gracious to us. He walks us through these experiences. He walks us through these touch points with eternity to remind us not to give up, to remind us not to give way to the lies of the enemy. And I think he's so good of him. Instead of just saying, look, I told you once this was going to happen. I told you I would, I would resurrect. And, and if you don't want to believe me, then fine. And then he just goes and takes his ball and goes home. It's not what Jesus does over and over and over again. He understands our lack of faith. He understands our struggle to see the eternal, even though everything we see around us is temporal and physical because it's present. And Jesus knew this because he, because he knows everything, but he also experienced it walking with his disciples because they were constantly falling short of getting it. We know this. In a conversation in John 13, Peter says to Jesus, so Lord, where are you going? We've heard this before. We know that you're moving on. Where are you going? Because we're not letting you leave without us. Where, where, where are you going? And so Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. There's a pointing towards, there's something worth hanging on to. Peter says to him, well, why can't I follow you now? I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. But Jesus answered, and we saw this on Friday night, just kind of brilliantly depicted in the passion movie where Jesus is shaking his head and kind of thinking like, you have no idea what's coming, do you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the most famous denial. Pastor Gary said it to us last Sunday. It's the, it's the greatest denial, if you will, of anybody of Jesus in all history. And we can say, well, Judas denied him pretty hard too. I mean, he turned him into the soldiers, but, but, but Jesus knew that was going to happen. He, he knew, but he also said, this one's a devil. He wasn't really with them. He was there, but he wasn't really with them. Peter was with Jesus. Peter is swearing testimony and, 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 and fealty to him saying, I will never Leave. I will not let you leave my sight. But he does. Even shortly after this conversation, the disciples fall asleep while Jesus goes off to pray, to prepare his will, to prepare his heart, to prepare his, his body, even to go through everything that he was about to go through in captivity and torture, torment and death. And because again, they're short-sighted, because again, they're more concerned with what's going on in life right in front of them in the earth that's right before them that they can touch and they can see and smell, they go to sleep. So Jesus comes and what does he do? What's wrong with you guys? How come you can't stick around? No, gently. He says, it's because of your lack of faith. You can't even watch with me one hour. He gets it. He knows who we are. 
And he also knows what he needs to provide for us because we'll never find that somewhere. We'll never find that in the recesses of our will and say, now I really mean it. We just don't have it in us because we're not God. We don't because we're broken by sin. And Jesus knows this. So how does he respond to these guys after saying, no, no, I'll never leave you. I won't walk away. You can count on me. This is what he says after saying, no, I'm sorry, you won't. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. I will add, though, it's not really supposed to be there, but in context of what we're talking about, but don't let this trouble your hearts. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. So again, Jesus is saying there's something to look forward to. There's future. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying this at the moment that their hearts are broken, that their, that their embarrassment is probably at its height because he thinks that Peter's going to deny him. And Peter's saying, I'm not going to let that happen. The other disciples are like, yeah, of course not. We wouldn't let that happen. Of course we wouldn't. We'd make Peter stick by your side. <laughs> Who knows what they were thinking? They certainly weren't thinking that he was right, I'm sure. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled by this. Someday you won't have to fail. Someday you won't have to be without me. Someday you won't have to keep looking in the mirror and say, how come I can't put it together? How come I can't figure this thing out? And he continues and he says, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, I don't. I actually, I don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way I'm standing right in front of you. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. In a, in a lot of ways. So my, my favorite commercials in the world right now are those ones that say, try not to become your parents. You know, it's probably an insurance commercial or something. They have all the best lines and stuff. And, and, and so all those things, I kind of feel like, oh man, I'm doing that. So now, because they've gotten so deep in my conscience, when I'm hanging out with my kids and I do some of those things, I like bite my tongue because I don't want to be the guy on the commercial, you know, fanny pack and everything. And like, Hey, I wonder what the overhead of this building is and all the square footage stuff and helping people come out of their parking spaces that didn't ask for your help and all that stuff. I'm like, wow, I've become that guy. Well, I, I also for a long time before I got the hang of GPS, which I know is sounds stupid, right? Hang of GPS. Doot, doot, doot. There it is. But I didn't know it, didn't trust it, maybe didn't have it on my smartphone or whatever the case may be. I don't know what my deficiency was, but I would print out my directions where I was going. I know I printed the Internet just like that commercial says not to do. And I would think about it the day before. I was like, man, you're not getting out much these days. You got to have, you know, paper and you got to highlight the road and everything. Make sure you don't miss the turn and all that kind of stuff. And then now that I've gotten used to GPS, I'm like, well, where has this been all along? And everyone's like, yeah, it's been about 15, 20 years. You know, we've been using this. I, I have less anxiety about going where I'm going now because somebody, I just say, tell me your address and I can punch it in. And you're all going, yeah, we know. But this is cool. You should check it out if you've never used it before. <clears throat> my anxiety level isn't, you know, I'm not preparing days in advance. I'm not making those same mistakes at the last minute, missing those turns. Cause I forgot to look over in the passenger seat at my highlighted marking. Now I get to shut the voice off or some of you put it in like the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger and all this kind of stuff. Like turn left now. What are you doing? You're an idiot. I don't know. Not in my notes. I'm going to get back to, I know some of you are like, he was planning to say this for Easter. I was not. 
Welcome to my family's world. Okay. So Thomas is asking Jesus, give me the address. I want to punch it in. It's not hard, Jesus. I just want to know where to go. You've been with us. You've told us everything. So just tell us this one last. I want to meet the father. And he says, I am the way. Coincidentally, they would all be called the way by reputation. We're going to see this in Acts. People of the way, they would be followers and believers of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the truth. I'm, I'm the way because I'm the path to get there, but I'm the truth because I shine light on every step. So you're not tripping over error and you're not falling into, um, cracks and those kinds of things. You're not skinning your knee. Why? Because I am truth. If you believe in me and you adhere to my words, they will be a light to your path and you will find the way to which you're going. And then he says, I am the life. Yes, he's demonstrated, he's resurrected those from the dead, but he would demonstrate it in the craziest fashion by raising himself from the dead. He's the life. In response to their loss after seeing him crucified on Friday night, they leave. The scripture says they were beating their breasts. I mean, these guys were in anguish and they were confused and they were bewildered. It wasn't just like, well, our team lost. We'll go home now. This was our lives are over. And everything we stuck our necks out to defend and believe and proclaim is all gone and stripped away from us. And scripture says they were beating their breasts. They were bewildered. They were kind of probably stumbling on the way home. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with life everlasting. This morning, very quickly, I'm going to ask you to We're going to go through the traditional account, Luke's account of the resurrection. It's been referenced to already in song and in readings and things this morning. We're going to package it together kind of in its full context, and we're going to go through it together. But I'm going to ask you to consider finding life today and to find that life in three distinct places. One is actually a location, and the other two are more from a starting point, what we should allow our hearts to become or what we should walk through in order to find true life. So the first place I'd have us look this this morning is in a borrowed tomb. So let's go to the account in Luke 23 and read this paragraph together. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. And this council that they're referring to here, if you remember from our study in John, the Sanhedrin was a was a was um, the Jewish leadership. They were kind of the equivalent of what we would call like the presidency and the Senate kind of melded together. There was authority, prestige, uh, prominence. He himself was a very wealthy individual. So this was no slouch and this was no kind of country bumpkin just coming out of the bushes going, oh, I want to get involved in this thing. He was involved in every discussion at the high highest of levels during this process. But the scripture says he was a good and righteous man. Unlike all of those that trumped up charges against Jesus and falsely accused him and brought him through this, this, um, what do they call it? Like a kangaroo court or something like that. This whole trial was a farce and just to get Jesus to be seen as guilty so that the Romans would execute him. But he was a good and righteous man in verse 31 who had not consented to the decision of his colleagues. He didn't go along with their actions. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Again, I want to pause. What an incredible inscription to have over your life. Someone who is looking for the kingdom of God. I have the, I have a a trip every morning where I drive by a graveyard 
And I'll often just notice, see if I can see new names I haven't seen before, not because they're new stones, but just, you know, you look and you see if you can see names, anything come to mind, anything. But I always remember, I mean, I always think about the fact when I see a name, what did that name mean to those people who cared so much and, and spent so much on these headstones? And some of them are very large and prominent. And you see that one last name and it'd be like a family plot and things. And you're like, who, who is this person to these people? And we know throughout history, all over the world, these monuments have been erected to the greatness of somebody somewhere. And they can be the most elaborate, beautiful uh, cemeteries and, and, and memorials and things. And yet most of us don't know who any of these people are. It's incredible. There have been massive monuments built and, 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 and elaborate um, areas uh, constructed for people that we've forgotten. Or don't even know or have never heard of. Yet there is one who borrowed a tomb. There was no name over it. There was no permanence of it. There was no place in which everyone could just come and kind of go, this is where he is. This is where it happened. And yet we're still talking about him. We're still walking in his steps. We're still transformed by his life thousands of years later. So to me, if I were to have an inscription over my name or in my life, if somebody said he was a man looking for the kingdom of God, I'd be very happy with that. Jesus said, if anyone is seeking, he will find. So we know that Joseph found the kingdom of God. So this man went to Pilate in verse 30, 52, old man, eyesight, italics. So this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So this whole thing about, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. First, you don't survive what he went through. But they saw his resting place. They saw the body convinced enough to go return and prepare spices and ointments. But as Pastor Tom had pointed out earlier for us that on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. They weren't rebels. They weren't out there just breaking law. Hey, he's our savior. He's our Messiah and everything. We don't have to stick by your stinking rules anymore. No, they rested on the Sabbath. I'm sure to great anxiety, like we heard that we got to do something with the body. We've got to preserve it the way it deserves to be preserved. Well, this was also in Joseph's mind because he had gone to Pilate and said, can I have the body? And this was an incredible request because someone who is convicted of treason and in the Jewish eyes convicted of blasphemy doesn't get a proper burial. In a sense, they're discarded the next day in the morning trash. So to even go and say, I'm presuming on you enough to, to request the body because he has to be uh, buried properly is an offense to the whole system. The Romans could easily look at that and say, did you think we got this wrong? You know that we don't allow for burials for people in his standing. Certainly to the other members of the Sanhedrin, they would have said, I'm sorry, are you casting a vote against us in public? Letting everybody know you didn't agree with our conclusions? But he was a good and righteous man. John refers to him as a secret disciple. Oh, I don't know why he was secret. Maybe his motive was if I stay with the Sanhedrin, maybe I can take some of the heat off of Jesus and his followers. I don't know. Some have speculated because he wasn't all in yet because he was still watching from a distance and he wasn't quite ready to risk it all and go in. I don't know. 
But I know he was looking for the kingdom of God. And when you look, you will find it. And there's certainly no mistaking that his actions he's taking now means he's all in. Risking reputation, wealth, everything for this move. Because he wants to take care of the body of the one he witnessed from a distance and came to love. I can't imagine. I, I'd have to imagine that while he's removing this lifeless body, and he and he's thinking, is this really real? How come there's no response? Are his eyes going to open? He's just going through all of that stuff that we don't often think about, all the steps involved. And, and could he also be having that very human thought? Am I burying myself at the same time that I'm burying him? What am I going back to after I do this? It's the point of no return. Paul, in fact, had said that in Romans 6, he asked the question, he says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The physical act of Joseph was a union with, with Jesus' death in that sense, in that burial. But Paul says spiritually, that's what's happened to us too. Those that have come to Christ, all of our sins, all of our, our history, all the things that have brought us shame, all the things that kept us away from a holy God have been buried with Jesus in that tomb. Joseph just happens to be portraying it for us in a sense. So Jesus leaves us a borrowed tomb, one that we can look in and find life in because it has been emptied. It shouldn't surprise us really that Jesus had to borrow a tomb. He kind of borrowed almost everything in life. If you know the the story of how he lived and where he walked and things, you know that he's got a history of that. Even before he was born, his parents had to borrow a place to give birth. He didn't even have that to his name in that sense because they were traveling and wandering things. He didn't have an earthly father by genetics because his mother was conceived. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he borrowed an earthly dad. Joseph was picked to raise Jesus on this earth. He needed a place to speak from so his voice could be heard. So he asked, could I use your boat? Launch out a little bit from the shore so I can project my voice. He needed to feed huge crowds, so he borrows a little boy's lunch. Needs to pay taxes, so he borrows a coin out of a fish's mouth. Try that. We got a few days left. Go fishing. Of course, when he's walking, or he's riding into the city to uh, enter into this season of his sacrifice. He's going to ride in triumphantly, yes, but he's also going to ride in in a demonstration of peace. And so he borrows a donkey to be led into the city as the people shout Hosanna. It shouldn't surprise us that he had to borrow a tomb. Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's incredible how he's fulfilling prophecy even in his death. He only needed things of earth temporarily. His mindset was on eternal things. So the things that happened to him while he was here on this earth were a, were a stepping stone, if you will, to the end victory. And of course, there's a lesson for us in that. Of course, we should be thinking about this from a standpoint of how much do I cling to earthly things and how, what are my possessions mean to me? How much do they have me rather than how much I have them? All of that stuff is true. And I've seen a lot of people stop there with the moral lesson of, see, Jesus was demonstrating by example how to let things of earth go. It's all very true. It's a great kind of subtext, if you will. But really what he was demonstrating is I don't need to be here long. 
This isn't what I came for. I didn't come just to lead the way to show you humility. I didn't just come to show you how to let go of earthly possessions. I came to save your souls from hell because I can pay for your sin. I can defeat death and I can win you to my father. But of course, borrowing a tomb shows who he was. He was humble. He told those that wanted to follow him. He goes, are you sure? The son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. It shows how inclusive he was because he could have done it all on his own, but he borrowed from people to include them in the narrative of all that God was doing. They were play actors in the grand stage of all of God's performance. But it also shows us his eternality. Because he fulfilled that prophecy. He fulfilled prophecy even when he was too dead to actually do it. It's incredible. Colossians 1 tells us, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So when David, the psalmist said in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's alluding to, he's giving us image to the fact that God's Holy One wouldn't decay. Of course, his tomb would be borrowed. And it's there that we need to look for life. What we see coming from the people in this in this narrative is also something that I think reflects where our hearts should be coming from. If you're really on this path to find true life and life everlasting, it needs to start somewhere. And so many times we come with our own stuff. We come with our own uh, ideas of why God should save us or what he should accept in our life. Or maybe he isn't asking for all of this because I don't think a God would do that. We come with our own makings. But I think we need to come to him to find life from a bereft heart, one that has been emptied, where our personal ambitions and our our wills and our answers to all of our own, our quote-unquote answers to all of our own problems have been removed. They've been vacated from our hearts. We see it in the lives of these people in the story because all hope of triumph was gone. I want to say they saw the whole thing. I want to say they understood what was going on. But even when we get to Acts, which we've been studying together on Sunday mornings, when Jesus comes back and he proves, hey, I'm risen, he says, and the spirit's going to come, they instantly connect to prophecy. And they said, well, when the spirit comes, that means our nation will be saved. So is it time now? They kept looking for this earthly restoration that was going to elude them even further. And Jesus says, that's not the kingdom I've come to build right now. The kingdom of God doesn't rely on the ambitions of men. It doesn't answer to the musings of men. The kingdom of God moves at God's command and God's timing. So let's go back into Luke and see in chapter 24 what takes place. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold... Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Much like some of you are wearing this morning, might I add. Lost my place. (laughs) Stop making cracks, Brent. Verse 5, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the the men said to them, why do you seek the living 
among the dead. That's such a matter of fact way, right? Why are you looking for living people in dead men's tombs? And their reaction is, uh, we didn't really know we were looking for someone who was living. We came expecting to find someone dead. But the angels, it's plain knowledge to them. They're a part of the announcement. They're heralding this. They know what's coming. So they're saying, why are you looking here for a living man? Well, it's good news. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that for us because, yes, we were on the wrong mission, apparently. He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Don't you remember what he told you? This should comfort us. This should really encourage us because they had a front row seat to everything Jesus taught, demonstrated. We watch the chosen because we want a little piece of like, I want to see how he acted. I want to see how he would have answered this question. Did he laugh? Did he have fun? Was he compassionate? All this kind of stuff. And they got to see that playing out all the time. And they still missed it. I, 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 I opened up our service confessing to you that I need these reminders of of the eternal. I need these reminders that I'm moving in the right path and following the right uh, Lord and all these kinds of things. That's just part of who I am as a broken human. But I also forget things a lot. <clears throat> I forget the things that I've studied and read and poured into my mind and things that have changed me. If you ever read a book, I'm like, that was amazing. Someone says, what was it about? Can't tell you. <clears throat> that is me. They were with him 24-7 and still missed it. On Friday night, we read several passages of how Jesus would, would say to them, this is going to happen. In Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let those words sink into your ears. He had to say it because he knew it wouldn't. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Later on, for he will be delivered over to the, to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. How do you miss that? It seems pretty plain to me. If any one of you said, hey, in a little while, this is all going to happen to me. Either I'm going to think you're whacked out or you're a drama, whatever, or you're all wrong, or I'm going to pay attention and be like, what's going to happen to them? I don't know how you go from hearing that the person that you love and you admire and you want to follow you said, you'll go to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden you forget Oh, that's, he said all that stuff. It's really plain. I think sometimes we forget that humans watch something that is so traumatic and it's almost like in a PTSD sense that they couldn't quite recover from what they had just witnessed. I mean, we go through glimpses of it on Friday night. We have to, we have to put different images on a screen because they're way too traumatic if it was just portrayed before us and everything. They saw it front and center and it was somebody that they had lived and walked with and, and ate with. So I, I think sometimes we forget that that would have a tendency to do some real damage to a person. Perhaps it's that. Perhaps it's. That as they were, as he was saying it, they were just blocking it. I don't want to entertain it. I don't want to think that you'd have to go through that. Whatever the case is, when the angel said, don't you remember? He said this had to happen. 
Peter uses that same expression when we come to Acts 1. And again, they've watched Jesus leave again, and they're all kind of forlorn and a little discouraged and stuff. And he says, don't you remember? The scriptures had to be fulfilled. We don't follow a victim here. We follow the one who's the captain of the ship. All of this was a part of God's plan. It is hard to watch. It is sorrowful to lose, but it's not over. Isaiah 53, we've referenced a lot in the last week or so, says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought, well, he's just gotten beat up. He's had his life taken from him. We esteemed him afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hundreds of years prior, that was going to be the plight or the mission of the Messiah. I can imagine that those reading Isaiah, hearing the prophet's voice are going, what? I don't know how to apply this. So we, we have a conquering king coming. Where does this fit? Now, in hindsight, it all makes sense that Jesus must be uh, led to death on behalf of us. But he also must be raised to life. The only reason that Jesus is celebrated today is because that tomb is empty and because he walked out of that grave. The last place I would ask you to look is in your burrowed conscience. And what I mean by this is what we see starting to play out. We come back to Luke 24. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Let's see ourselves in the mirror again. If we're hearing this incredible news, our minds have kind of erased all the words that Jesus said. And we didn't have the benefit of a couple of really sharp dressed angels saying, hey, don't forget, he said this before. They're hearing it for the first time. They're going to have the same reaction. Be like, "Uh, no, that's doesn't make any sense. Let's not chalk this up to, though this was common of the culture of the day. Well, you're just a bunch of women speaking. We don't take your word seriously. These were followers of Jesus, all in the same mix as we heard before our choir this morning. Um, this was They were all disciples and followers of Jesus. This wasn't a dismissal of their testimony. It was jaw-dropping disbelief. You are out of your minds. This doesn't happen. Doubt loaded with discouragement. We know they didn't believe because they didn't act. Nothing happened as a result of this news in them except for one. We come back to Peter, my personal favorite character other than Jesus in the whole story. And Peter was made low by his failure, his confession. I mean, his his denial of Jesus we know is famous. Sometimes we also forget that it was Jesus who wanted to single Peter out because Peter becomes the representation of our quickness to deny Jesus. So Jesus makes an example of him even in hope of the resurrection. In Mark 16, he, he, uh, the angels say to the, to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Yes, Peter, you better be there. You will see him just as he told you. 
the angels single Peter out because he represents us and our failure, our trading in Jesus, if you will, because of the pressure, the fear, the whatever. So what does Peter do when he hears this news? Peter can't afford to not believe this. You saw it on, on a screen Friday night if you were here. The last thing Peter saw that was no doubt burning in his memory for days was the stare of Jesus as he was literally just saying, I don't even know who this guy is. And Jesus is looking at Peter through his soul, we say. Peter's haunted by this memory and living with this. So when somebody says he wasn't in the tomb, Peter doesn't hesitate to think, you mean... Maybe I'm forgiven. Maybe I have another shot at saying to him, I'm so sorry I did that to you. Maybe I'll see him face to face. Peter doesn't hesitate. He rose and ran to the tomb, according to verse 12. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home. And what a small word word this is for what I think Peter was really experiencing, marveling at what had happened. I don't know what other word you can come up with, but I don't think it exists. I don't think there's a word that says what Peter felt when there was hope that his tortured soul could be forgiven because Jesus was alive. He runs. He looks in. He looks in the borrowed tomb. He, his whole mission, his whole personal agenda of Peter being the best Peter ever and living his best life now has been evacuated from his soul. And now his conscience has been sufficiently cleaned out and excavated by the Holy Spirit so that he has come saying, I am all in. If this is true, I am his forever and I will never, ever leave his side again. Because he knew what that meant. Jesus would prove his ability to forgive sins based on what he could do physically before their eyes. He would, he would heal the sick. He would raise the dead. And so Peter knew my sins are forgiven if he's not laying in that tomb. We know from scripture without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but also without the raising of the dead, there is no eternal life. The only hope you and I can find in this life is found in a borrowed tomb. And it isn't until we come to the end of ourselves that we will even dare to look in. I'm begging you this morning to let Jesus bring you to the greatest place of your personal shame, your personal defeat, all the things that you think no one could ever look at this and love me. Let him take you to that place to prove to you his undying forgiveness. He died to pay for that sin and failure, but he rose to put it to death. It does not have to count against your record any longer. The name of Jesus is our victory because of all that he did, all that he represents. And his gift of eternal life is free to you this morning. It cost him everything. All you need to do is look in that tomb and see that he's alive. And ask the Lord, say, come in and save my life. Renew my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and I will follow you all my days. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's close our time in prayer as we continue to lift our voices once again. In the victorious name of Jesus. Lord God.
every year, I wonder how long we will allow this practice of looking forward to Easter Sunday morning and getting dressed up and getting together with family and then sharing our time together after church. Every year, I wonder how long does this practice live in our culture? And I'm amazed, Lord, that you continue to pour people in and you continue to speak your truth to them and your love for them and put it on display. And I'm so thankful, God, that it has not become old, that it has not gotten missed. So, Lord, this morning, all that we have to give to you is our praise and our wonderment of how you, who could uh, love us so much, would give your life for us and then not let it end there as a good example, but that you would rise victorious, defeating the death in us. So, Lord, as we come together to commemorate this, as we come together to celebrate it and lift it up, I pray that you would have a resurrection in the souls of individuals this morning. Not renewed to their own life, but to encounter yours. Our, our life, Lord, can be dead. It can stay in the grave. We don't need it back. It brought us nothing. It paid for nothing. Your life is the only one worth following. The way in which to find the Father, the truth to illuminate our path, that life. That's the one you offer us. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are those in this room this morning who have not encountered that life, Lord, in the place in which they stand, would they just humbly, simply, silently or out loud just say, Lord, forgive me. Thank you, Lord, for your love. I don't deserve it. I give you my life, little that it is, but I want yours in exchange. God, I pray that there would be souls who have been renewed this morning on Easter for that. Lord, lead them to growth and lead them to discipleship. Lead them to to following you so that their life would truly be transformed and the lives of those around that person would be transformed as well. Thank you for showing us your mercy, using us this morning to proclaim your goodness and to demonstrate your life. Lord, thank you for the celebration and may it only continue as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.